Let's start with a couple of notes first. This is the intro to our not quite released book yet, I Am Gravity. Most of the time I'll be reading, but I'll have the occasional riff because reading is not always like talking to someone, and I would much rather talk to you than read to you. Before we dig in, though, a quick footnote about footnotes. I'm not covering most of those on the research, etc. It's cited in the book. Every stat has a source, but I won't stop every time to note it, mainly because it disrupts the flow. And for that same reason, I won't read section headings because while it's great in writing, it's a little hard to follow when out of the blue, I'm just saying a word or a semi-cryptic line. And then last, but definitely not least, thank you for listening. The intro is titled The Center of Human Gravity, and there are two epigraphs to the intro. First by Aeneas Nin, life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. Second by Dr. Atul Gawande, ingenuity is often misunderstood. It is not a matter of superior intelligence, but of character. And now the book. Chapter 1, Consequential. We live in a hyper-competitive world of two inescapable realities, inequality and potential. Maybe we started life with a window overlooking Harvard's halls, or we were peeking through the hole of a boarded shack on the unsympathetic poverty of Haiti. For some, birth itself is a lucky ticket into a circle of opportunity, and some arrive miles and miles behind. We are not equally free, safe, smart, gifted, connected, or skilled. The terrain is never flat or fair. No two lives mirror each other. No two circles are identical, and neither is what we do with them. And as we fight our way out of a brutal circle, or test the edge of one too tight for us, or we're free to fly as we please, Everyone is trained to live on a steady diet of confidence, competence, and competitive drive. Not surprising, very pragmatic. No one really questions it. 67% of executives put competence at the top of the career capital list. The diet is devoured as the elixir of action, the focal point of job interviews and reviews itemized on your resume to separate the fittest from the rest. Corporate memos kick the diet into overdrive. Lean and mean, more with less, go harder, work longer, skill up, play big, be bold. Deviate from the doctrine, it's religiously believed, and business spins into a semi-profitable love-in. Maybe you're a believer. It's a large congregation. One fintech CEO sitting restlessly in the pews and nearing an IPO told us, I can't shake the feeling that we're missing the intensity to take the next step. So what if the intensity execs and emails keep pushing is essential, just misdirected? What if good is all the diet can do? And in the hardest circles, competitive, unjust, or uncharted circles, what if the diet can't feed us what we need? This is a book to rewrite the memos and modernize the diet. And it begins by rethinking 
qualifications, not your resume, not your diet and deliverables. It's deeper than that. The origin of power that creatively underpins and socially feeds it all. A stabilizing yet adaptive power that has the longevity to sustain, even propel you into greater relevance and influence. On July 14, 1960, 26-year-old Valerie Jane Goodall entered the jungles of Tanzania to make one of the most historic scientific discoveries of the century. And she was, in nearly every way, the least qualified person to make it. Just how she made her way into the jungle began six months earlier. After decades in the dust digging for fossils to better explain the origin of human beings, archaeologists and paleoanthropologists Lewis and Mary Leakey knew there was a limit to how much they could learn below ground, on the outskirts of what is now Tanzania's Gombe National Park. So Lewis applied for grants to study chimpanzees in the wild, and after several rejections, the money finally came, with a six-month expiration date. If his study of living primates didn't uncover something scientifically remarkable, then it was back to bones. So it would have been logical in Dr. Leakey's search for a project lead to put experienced anthropologists and primatologists at the top of his candidate list. And if you were applying for the job, aren't experience and expertise exactly what you'd highlight, even exaggerate a little, on your resume and in your interview? Instead, Leakey handed the controls to Goodall, a new assistant from London with no college degree and whose resume listed secretarial work waitressing and choosing music for documentaries. Not surprisingly, experts questioned her age and her qualifications. Officials were convinced that entering a jungle alone was no job for a quote-unquote young girl, especially one who described her credentials as an open mind, a passion for knowledge, a love for animals, and monumental, remember that word, patience. Why Goodall was Leakey's first choice is a central point of this book. The nature of who she was mattered more in what awaited her than the qualifications of what she had or hadn't done. And suddenly, Jane went from wanting the job to landing the job. And like Jane, we're gripped by two colliding thoughts. I cannot wait to do this. And what if I can't? Jane wondered, how on earth was I going to find the chimpanzees? There was no one to tell me. Louis Leakey didn't come. I was on my own. It was all up to me. And as every hour in the Gombe jungle ticked away, she grew more and more worried, she said, as the days turned to weeks and the weeks turned to months. Because I knew if I didn't see something exciting before the money ran out, that would be the end of the study. That would have really weighed heavily on me. Because he had risked so much of his reputation on doing this crazy thing of sending this young girl out. Before her time in the jungle ended, she stunned the world, and maybe herself, capturing chimp behavior and emotions never seen or even thought to exist. She also discovered that, like men, as Time magazine put it, chimpanzees are technological animals. Leakey captured the scale of Goodall's discovery. Now we must redefine tool, redefine man, or accept chimpanzees as humans. And if the young, unofficial, primatologist discovery were the end of the story, or Jane played out her career alone in the jungle. Maybe her need for monumental patience 
or curiosity or bravery would ease as the diet took over. But it was just the beginning. The domino effect of Goodall's breakthrough set her on a new, less private path. Fame came with its own jungle of interviews, lectures, tours, and television that didn't fit Jane's quiet disposition or her distaste for the spotlight. And now full of devout curiosity about Abe's, Jane pursued a Ph.D., chased funding from organizations like National Geographic, defended her methods to the scientific community without yet being sanctioned as one of them, and dialed up her activism. The bigger her ambitions, the more her circles morphed and multiplied, the deeper she had to dig. And Jane's triumphant exit from the jungle isn't the only way it all could have ended. Too many tidy success stories make a mess of our expectations. So before we get too charmed by Jane's ending, let's rewrite it. Imagine Jane came home empty-handed. Let's say the chimps never allowed her close enough to make science-changing observations, even after months of fevers, scorpions, snakes, sleepless nights, culture shock, and sitting desperately still through storms and hurricanes trying to earn their trust. What if, after pouring everything she had into the study, she never witnessed a chimpanzee using a twig as a tool to pull termites from a hole for food? A discovery that dismantled the prevailing view that creating tools was, in fact, what separated humans from apes. Imagine the study ended, and Jane returned to London, leaving the truth about chimps and tools on a termite hill in Tanzania. Would Jane have been any less heroic, any less ahead of her time? Should she see herself as inferior to her peers or predecessors? Would she somehow be less ready, less qualified for the next jungle? Do her odds of making history suddenly drop? One science-shifting discovery is not what made her great early, or what makes any of us great ever. One jungle does not define us. One catapult doesn't send us sailing forever. When the jungle promised Jane a once-in-a-lifetime break at the bottom of the learning curve, she leaned on the only thing she had, the only thing any of us have, when the only way up the learning curve is flying straight into the teeth of it. The curiosity in your bones to see tools in a twig and humanity in a chimp when everyone else sees nothing but ape. The bravery in your bloodstream that holds you together and sets you apart in a hurricane whatever social or political storms surge into you. The humility in your head and equality in your lungs to disallow ego, insecurity, or prejudice to corrupt the powers of confidence when you're just a young girl or told you're to anything to do that thing. In a word, gravity. The pure force of specific core traits that make us creatively socially consequential. The moment that an ounce of humility, a dash of curiosity, or a delicate taste for truth are not just mild deficiencies. They're the deepest kind of flaws. And when the cursor is blinking, waiting on you 
for the right words, not just more words. When context is everything and copy and paste is a trap or a curse. When what you say will turn a conversation, meeting, a design, a reputation. And when you send, say, or do it, people will either read on or yawn, rebel or line up, hate or adore, respond or delete, shift or just settle in. And there's always a blinking cursor, a blank space, when you're on the edge of something, when the work is just outside our competent zone, even if it's not outside our comfort zone, where angles and nuance, personalities, politics, agendas, views, passions, and moral battles live, when even our imagination can't quite keep up with a future that never leaves Pandora's box alone. Gravity is why not everyone who speaks truth to power speaks at full power. Why you can be perceptive at 25 or oblivious at 50. Why you can be competent yet not relevant, confident but not inspired. Gravity isn't a substitute for the diet. It's the fortifying source of it. Gravity isn't a genetic gift. It's not age. It's built not by a to-do list for leading, toolbox for talking, or a magic potion personality. Not even by being authentic. Everyone is authentically bad at times. Gravity is elemental. And nailing down exactly what gravity or gravitas practically means, or getting a grip on why we may or may not lack the intangible it, has been historically hard. This is a book to demystify it, to make gravity more visible, more viable. And the word Jane used to describe her patients, monumental, is a good place to start exploring gravity. On paper, words like monumental are just overplayed or overlooked adjectives until you're in a jungle. Chapter 2 a brave new world. At one point, the working name of our study was the 27 Project, and the number had a face. We were working with 20 and 30-somethings on a dual path of building confidence and a career. And based on the averages, age 27 signaled the arrival of a what-the-hell stage. Big learning curves, brick walls, empty space, long waiting times, new jobs, roles, partnerships, pursuits, and a little disillusionment. Then the political and industrial axis of the world started shifting, and it was soon very clear that age 57 and 27 were on parallel tracks paved by the times. And now everyone's on the curve. A white paper by Accenture uh, titled Breaking Through Disruption could have been titled, Have You Had the Hell Scared Out of You Lately? 71% of companies say they're in the throes of disruption or on the brink, making the world beautifully wide open and kind of terrifyingly uncertain. Popular science projected the future of work, which feels a little bit more like now, as extra-dimensional, supercharged, scarier and scarier, and running on reckless. 
World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab wrote that the speed of current breakthroughs has no historical precedent. When compared with previous industrial revolutions, the fourth revolution, which we are in, is evolving at an exponential rather than a linear pace. And the revolution ripples into life. Unlike most 16-year-olds who focus on fitting in junior prom and passing driver's ed, Kate, who's now a 30-something chief operating officer for an ad agency, spent most of her early life racing toward her one true love journalism. Entering college at 17, graduating with honors at 20, and stocked with a resume of internships, Kate landed her dream job as a producer with a major network affiliate at 21. At 23, being told by her boss that she was too bossy, things unraveled. In one of our 250 interviews for this project, Kate told us, I was just doing what every producer did. But I was young and a woman. And so now I was also disillusioned. The network was a soap opera, and journalism as a field was shrinking and shifting at the same time. I started getting anxious. I thought, if not this, then what? My confidence was gone. I was a journalist. I spent my life becoming one, My friends thought I was crazy to even think about starting over. My boss, a woman, tried to intimidate me into staying, threatening that I would, quote, never work in this media market again if I didn't sign a contract by the end of the week. Kate quit. And that meant attacking one of the stingiest paradoxes in business. No experience means no job. And no job means no experience. Kate catapulted to an entry-level public relations assistant with a part-time job in daycare to pay her bills. Next, a do-it-all role in a startup, then marketing manager and a ladder jump to COO. All in 10 years with four companies. Kate hit a conveyor belt of square ones. And in revolutions, it's more the rule than the exception. Chris Himes, who is the CEO of job search firm Indeed, and cue the irony on job search, worked in the chemical dependency unit of a psychiatric hospital, taught high school special education, played music for three years, trying to be a rock star, then jumped back to graduate school in computer science. The straightest path is not always the most relevant or even the right one. And sometimes a career change is not just a career change. It's a personal metamorphosis. No surprise, then, that when Apple's VP of Hardware Engineering, Kate Bergeron, was asked for advice by a group of MIT seniors, she said, A lot of career choices are like a game of shoots and ladders. You don't always get to just walk up the ladder. Sometimes you have to move horizontally or even go down a little to an opportunity that eventually will lead you to the next ladder. So unless your job description matches your job exactly and indefinitely, you will spend more time building your resume than leaning on it. All of which does not mean that every day is an avalanche of chaos on the edge of the apocalypse. It just means the less linear less charted, less protected, square one, 
is the new habitat. Our interviews with people on shoots, ladders, and squares were laced with words of what it feels like. Unfamiliar, uncomfortable, panicked, unknown, perplexing, unpredictable, uneasy, and lost. And square one is a very telling place to ask someone if they're confident. The answer isn't easy, and it's not meant to be. You can be intimidated, brave, lost, curious, perplexed, driven, and insecure, all at the same time. Confidence isn't a solitary, static feeling that hums just below the surface, holding us unshakably self-assured. And if the belief in one's powers definition of confidence holds, which is as wide as it gets, then it's not one's source either, and new habitats need new habits. So, we set out in search of sources, anchored in that very spacious definition of confidence. We charted a table of human elements, traits, strengths, and virtues from agile to zealous. And the table wasn't a metaphor. It was a map for digging into the tiniest details of human nature. And as real as expertise, talent, IQ, titles, and demographics are as a slice of confidence, we stripped it all away to zero in on the core. And we didn't care what scientific category an element fit. They're all powers. We dissected every element. We traced behaviors to the mentality, a belief set of each one. And like code runs your apps, mentality runs behavior. No matter what a user does, apps cannot operate outside the code. And nothing matters more than the code in your head. Chapter 3. Believers As part of Dove's Real Beauty movement years ago, ad agency Ogilvy conducted an experiment in code. Women who joined the experiment were asked to make one new acquaintance in a group of strangers, mostly women. After socializing, the women were invited into a separate room, one at a time. As each woman sat alone on a couch behind a white curtain, FBI-trained forensic sketch artist Gil Zamora sat at a drafting table on the other side, unable to see her. And he asked her all the sketch artist questions. Tell me about your eyes, jaw, forehead, cheekbones, hair, skin, and on and on. As she answered, Zamora sketched. And once he finished, Zamora thanked the woman, and she left. Next, the new acquaintance of the woman entered the room, sat on the same couch, behind the same white curtain, answering the same questions from Zamora. Once finished, Zamora walked with each woman into the gallery of sketches, self-sketch version on the left, new acquaintance version on the right. In the silence of absorbing the contrast, between the two sketches, Zamora asked the women what they thought, impromptu. As it turns out, there was a bug in the code. The stranger's sketch was a far better match of each woman's real appearance, and by her own standards, more beautiful. Analyzing the sketch that she gave Zamora, one woman said, She looks fatter, shut down, sadder too. And then turning to the stranger's sketch, she said, She looks more open, 
friendly, and happy. I think I've come a long way in how I see myself, and I think I have a long way to go. Others said, happy, younger, much brighter person. One described the gap between her sketch and the sketch by a new acquaintance as troubling. Another woman said, our self-perceptions are generally kind of harsh and unbecoming, when really that's not how the world sees us. And I have some work to do on myself. Amazed by the gap, beliefs reset, code corrected. So what happens if you try rewriting code with no side-by-side sketches? Two years later, in a social experiment overseen by Columbia University's Anne Kearney Cook, Dove invited women to test a revolutionary product aimed at enhancing how women see themselves. The product was a patch, like a nicotine patch called RBX, and the women wore it 12 hours a day for 15 consecutive days and then recorded their experience in a daily video journal. At first, no change. Then, day by day, they started feeling a little better about themselves, more social, more at ease receiving compliments, less self-conscious. On day 20, each woman met with Kearney Cook to give market feedback on the patch. Life-altering experience. I've been more social with the patch on. I've definitely opened up something inside of me to make me feel this great. I'm beautiful, I'm strong, and I'm independent, and I can just be whoever I want to. Asked if they would buy the patch, if it became available on the market, the answer was yes. Then asking if they would like to see the active ingredients on the patch, Kearney Cook slid a patch across the table. On the back was the ingredient list. Nothing. It was a placebo. As code-changing as the RBX patch was, not everyone cheered. A New York Magazine headline read, This Dove ad is garbage. Journalist Maggie Lang took issue with how the women were portrayed. Shame upon you, Dove, for making these women seem dumb and for not scripting at least one of them to act outraged that she had been duped. Twitter outrage started. Degrading, staged, fooled. If you're a woman with two brain cells to rub together, how could you not find Dove insulting? Do not forget the two brain cells dig. We noticed a mysterious disappearance of the Patches video, including Dove's webpage for the project. Would critics think it was insulting if a placebo patch improved the efficacy of a cancer treatment? Or if women's physical health improved, their depression eased, or anxiety alleviated? Placebos don't signal gullibility or low IQ. They signal the cognitive biological power of the brain. Neurons and neural pathways can be repaved, remarked, and even regenerated. It's called neuroplasticity, which is a very long-syllabled way of saying psychological code, even a little biology, is up to us. That's not to say that popping psychological placebos is a miracle cure for every problem or self-perception flaw that ails us. The point is that these placebos set truth free, 
not illusions. The women were different than the Vogue images that slipped into their perceptions and corrupted the code. And for all of us, amid the blitz of politics, metrics, movements, ads, economies, religion, and science, tuned into talks, news feeds, podcasts, and conversations at work, home, and on the street, among coworkers, friends, family, and strangers, in bars, meetings, subways, and planes. The placebos we swallow aren't, in the strictest sense of the term, placebos at all. They are a prescriptive shift in beliefs, a sort of open architecture that sets or resets code in the blitz of it all. The women in these experiments expanded their awareness, updated paradigms, countered the counterfeits, and may have even changed their biology. In view of that, we're all dumb and duped. And belief, to brain cell placebo or not, triggers change. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit, begins with the story of a woman named Lisa Allen. Allen made an astounding turnaround in her life from an unhealthy, underemployed, down-on-her-luck woman with debt collectors hounding her, to living in employed, fit, alcohol-free, cigarette-free, financially secure, productive life. Duhigg's book explains the cue, routine, reward, habit loop that changed and may have saved Lisa's life. There is, however, one line from the science that's easy to miss, yet may be the most important idea of actually building habits. Because for reasons they, the scientists, were just beginning to understand, Duhigg wrote, that one small shift in Lisa's perception that day in Cairo had touched off a series of events, cues, routines, and rewards, that would ultimately radiate out to every part of her life. A new belief, and the intensity of Lisa's belief, sent a psychological shockwave through the mechanics of her old habits. Anything that you feel, something is happening in the brain, said Kinsey Institute anthropologist Helen Fisher. It's not your imagination. The full habit loop looks a lot more like cue, belief, routine reward. Brigham Young University's Gender and Civic Engagement Lab found that crashing glass ceilings that keep women outnumbered and silenced in politics and boardrooms, and maybe in your meeting tomorrow morning, starts with re-engineering beliefs that set the limits in the first place. Lab director Olga Stoddard said, Many of the gender differences we observe are really driven by beliefs, not capability. And if we could just manipulate beliefs a little bit, maybe things could be different. So how do you manipulate beliefs? A start is by knowing how the mechanics of belief work, even when the weakest cues set a habit loop in motion. The brain's way of directing logic and emotion is a symphony of circuitry, arranged and composed by certain regions of the brain, chemicals, pathways, and neurons, and there is a sequence to the symphony. Mapping MRIs to how beliefs are created and converted to action in your brain, social scientists Hans Ferdinand Angel and Rudiger Seitz 
laid out a process that happens in milliseconds. Perceptions merge with emotions to create beliefs. You then act on the beliefs, see what happens, adapt, and evolve. The tighter the network of beliefs, the greater the intensity, the stronger the pull. Your mentality drives how you behave, and that leads to what you create. Behavior is a byproduct of what's in your head, not the basis. And anything can set the believe-behave-create sequence in motion. A word, look, passion, a topic, mood, personality, pressure, competition, ego, bias, insecurity. Once triggered, every element on the table can lose psychological power in two ways. One is nearly invisible, even a little diabolical. Chapter 4. Switched. In an experiment to see how self-confidence changes behavior, psychologists Li Chi Zhang and Roy Baumeister gave students $5 and invited them to compete in a one-on-one bidding war to win a dollar by spending up to $5 to win it. Pure logic suggests that the students should spend no more than a buck to win a buck and then just walk away with the rest. But just before the competition began, a research assistant pulled one student from each table aside for a private conversation. She said, if you're the kind of person who usually chokes under pressure or you don't think you have what it takes to win the money, then you might want to play it safe. But it's completely up to you. Zhang and Baumeister called that little pep talk an ego thread to see just how it affected the student's performance during the competition. The threatened students walked back to the table and started bidding. As the war to win the dollar progressed, the threatened students' bids escalated to $3.71. And by the way, even the non-threatened students bid more, just because they were interacting with the ego-threatened students. And when interviewed later, the quote-unquote winning students felt embarrassed not only by the money they'd spent, but they felt worse about themselves. So in other words, Winning cost them cash and confidence. But if we trace the behavior, the impulsive overbidding, the faulty logic and bad decisions that were at the bidding table back to the pre-competition constellation of beliefs or mentality that Zhang and Baumeister planted in the heads of the students, like winning is everything, don't choke, do you have what it takes, and the emotions tied to those beliefs, envy, rivalry, or insecurity, The student's drive to compete, an element, switched not to the opposite, like apathy or paralyzing doubt, but to a counterfeit, hyper-competitive. And the drive to hyper-competitive switch went unnoticed by the students until they realized later just how bad their bids were. And they couldn't see or feel the switch because being hyper-competitive mentally and emotionally imitated drive. And what's true for students is true for all of us. For simplicity, let's set elements on a sliding scale to see how they move. At the center of that scale is the strongest version of any element. For example, let's take optimism. A healthy mentality anchors optimism there. The deeper the beliefs, the stronger it stays. The psychological ends of the scale pull us from center The opposite of optimism, pessimism pulls left. The counterfeit, idealizing, pulls 
right. Each extreme, both ends, have their own mentality and intensity. And as the ends pull on the elements, they pull you, socially and creatively. Opposites are easy to see. They get the self-help buzz. And the outside edges of both ends are easy to see. But this isn't a book on edges or opposites. What's harder to see, much harder, are the counterfeits just off-center. Grit gets inflexible. Patience slips into apathy. Empathy starts micromanaging. For example, am I letting healthy competitive drive fuel me, a centered element, or rivalry, a counterfeit? Am I helping a coworker figure things out, centered, or coddling them, counterfeit? Am I paying attention to detail or buried in the weeds? Am I bringing bulletproof logic to the table or just straight cynicism? And the answers to those questions start privately in our head, then play out publicly. Is this debate going somewhere or spinning out? Is this progress or just another pivot? Are we buying in or caving in? Are ideas clashing or personalities? Are we taking control to make things better or feed our ego? The 8,000 people we surveyed for this project said they or coworkers are on the counterfeit side of those questions one of every five times. And your audience, whether it's your team, client, citizens, a partner, they can't quite put words to the switch. They chalk it up to a personality quirk, a forgivable but irritating imperfection, a bad day, or they say that's just Chris being Chris. And it's not that we go off center all the time. It's the moment when he or she walks into the room, or that topic comes up, or we're in this meeting, or that thought creeps in, or some history starts haunting us. Those forces tugged on Liz, a creative director that we interviewed one night after learning that a coworker, that coworker, went over her head to a vice president trying to get Liz's decision on a project reversed. Liz was incensed. When her VP texted a time for the three of them to meet the next morning, we received a late-night message. So sorry to text so late. Do you have time to talk? Crazy time at work, frowny face. Help. During the call, Liz wanted to map out every twist and turn of the conversational maze she expected in the morning. So she asked questions like, well, what do I say if she? What happens when he? What's the best way to? Liz needed a stronger center of gravity, not a script. One afternoon, we received an out-of-the-blue call from Cade, an engineer at a startup, to see if there was a remedy for the symptoms he could see coming in a big company meeting one hour away. Big decisions, big politics, big investors, even bigger egos. Those meetings are a petri dish for counterfeits. Let's say you're headed into a petri dish, a how-are-we-going-to-pull-this-off meeting. And the idea on the table is yours, at least a big part of it. And by nature or nurture, you're wired with elements like drive, grit, and ingenuity. Or they're just the elements you need right now. Either way, let's call those elements red. Choose whatever color you want. 
And red elements operate on a mentality, your network of beliefs. For example, failing is inevitable, not insurmountable. Indecision is the thief of opportunity. To do what no one has, you must see what no one can and say what no one will. The way things are is the refuge of the uninspired. Progress is slightly more madness than method. And that network of beliefs, that mentality triggers what you do in the meeting. You love to be jolted and jolt others out of preconceived ideas to see things from a new angle. Egos and politics in the room don't stop you from giving voice to the truth as you see it. You think freely, unafraid to be wrong, or spark a little chaos to agitate the conversation when it's too safe to be creative. And you do it in a way that people love. Until. What if red counterfeit beliefs are in your head? Or you don't start with counterfeits, but the meeting's intensity, like students in the bidding war, sets them in motion like free radicals from an ego diet, randomly attacking the originals. Either way, your mentality gets remapped. Giving up or giving in is failure. Do something. You can always pivot later. Those who fight new ideas just fear change. The reality distortion field is how breakthrough happens. Chaos cures the status quo. Rebellion is the catalyst of change. Now, drive, grit, and ingenuity are switched to counterfeits. Hyper-competitive, inflexible, and disruptive. You confuse your passion with certainty. Defending an idea to you is defensiveness to them. You inflate data, consciously or not, beyond its real significance, filter information that may throw shade on your idea, even twist the truth a little. The harder you work to put a story together, the more you feel like the idea's protector instead of an investigator. And they're not talking honestly because you're not truly asking. Maybe you only pay attention to minor concerns that won't jeopardize the boldness of your vision. You start welding your identity to your idea, so it may matter who's right, not what's best. You may see some in the room as lacking vision or even as competitors. It's unspoken, but they feel it, and they won't forget it. And in your red head, you feel red, look red, and sound red but not to everyone else. And work never stays at work. Early in my marriage, just out of college, I co-founded a startup. And after three years of inching closer and closer and closer to the end, I tied my self-worth to the company's net worth. I spent ridiculously long hours at work, which is not the best strategy for the start of a new marriage. And as I returned home from work one midnight, my wife waited at the top of the stairs. Why, she asked, are we married? At one point during the long talk that followed, she said, I didn't know I married a workaholic. And I said, you didn't. You married a dedicated entrepreneur. Hmm. 
the metamorphosis from strength to counterfeit is so slight, it's almost unfair. Counterfeits are camouflaged to us, clear to them. So, at this point in our study, the hazy belief in one's powers definition of confidence was clearing up, and in a way, the answers purified the power of the elements. Counterfeits were detected. The mentality of each element began illuminating. So did the way single elements connected to do what they can't alone. One founder of a 30-person startup told us, the one thing they, meaning his investors, want to see is grit, that you're never going to quit. Okay, well, even if that's what investors want, at least his, what is never say die grit without an obsessively curious mind to test what we're chasing? How relevant is fanatical passion without penetrating empathy to fully see the need? On the non-human periodic table, Elements are attracted in unique combinations. They create something together they cannot separately. We breathe one element, oxygen, and drink it when hydrogen connects, H2O. And in the same way, only four elements make up 96% of your body. Specific human elements bond to do the same thing. One set of elements, drive, Ingenuity, passion, openness, optimism make us resilient. Another, focus, logic, grit, patience, adaptability, bonds to build discipline. So we started wondering what elements, what arrangement fit new habitats better, were more relevant, more rooted. We watched and analyzed people talk, meet, pitch, create, debate pivot. We tracked the elements, paid attention to patterns. Along the way, we plowed through hundreds of academic papers, articles, and books on revolutions, disruptions, startups, and innovation, dating all the way back to the 50s, 20th century 50s, if you're reading this, after 2049. At pivotal points in these writings, the authors painted the times and behaviors in the extremes. The clash of conflicting views, violent disagreement, transcending the curse of competence. Nothing interesting begins without doubt. Leap of faith assumptions, you need storms, naive questions, normal rules are suspended, obsessive reflection on failure, a crisis of confidence, caught in the bloody red ocean of competition, vaporize the economics of existing business models. And the ultimate square one sentence, all we know is that no one knows. So as the authors witnessed the work intensify, so did a rare elementary intensity of the people doing the creative, chaotic work of it all, trying to convey the sheer force of humility he saw in good to great turnaround leaders Researcher Jim Collins chose the word to describe that humility as extreme. Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer Doris Kearns Goodwin tied Abraham Lincoln's sweeping sense of equality 
to his acute sensitivity to pains and injustices. Columbia University Zhadong Lin used words like insatiable and hunger to describe the curiosity and the appetite for truth that carry Nobel laureates to victory over wicked problems and bright competitors. Adjectives like stunning, profound, immense, deep, and in Jane's case, monumental, revealed elements of a mighty moral intensity. Chapter 5. Elemental. For the ones who thrive in hyper-competitive, hyper-creative, hyper-connected habitats, three elements and the habits those elements create and sustain run at a higher intensity and frequency. One, radical humility that shifts nerves to nerve and tames the havoc ego creates. Less bravado, more bravery. Less rivalry, more range. Less pressure to prove, more grace under pressure. A kind of confidence that is equal to everyone and better than no one. Number two, contagious curiosity to wake the incurious, an appetite to argue for and against your idea, and switch perspective without fear of switching sides. And three, relentless veracity, to see the truth, not stereotypes, to speak up to anyone and down to no one, to be the signal, not the noise, to hold less tidy meetings and dive into more messy truth, where concepts clash, not personalities. And what better doctor to diagnose perplexing symptoms, therapist to dive into a mind, politician to protect rights, activist to champion justice, designer to beautify, founder to plant the seed of a startup, CEO to breathe life into a dying brand, scientist to save a planet, or preacher to save a soul. The elements feed the diet, and then the diet feeds us. And while the chemistry of the elements makes the whole greater than the sum of its parts, imagine how just one, perpetual curiosity, changes us. Debate opens minds without drawing lines. Feedback meets with less suspicion, less resistance. Judgments posing as questions disappear. Theories masquerading as fact fade away. New ideas get a voice before criticism swipes left. No wonder Einstein, who scaled one epic learning curve after another, called curiosity holy. Every element holds its own sanctified power. And you can't rent gravity. It's an act of ownership. This book is divided into three parts, one per element. Each one starts with the science and social code that builds or breaks the element. And access to the full power of the elements often goes against the grain. Counterintuitive, countercultural, just never counterproductive. Unsurprisingly, every element has its own counterfeits. A question impersonates curiosity. Invisibility imitates humility. Blunt force masquerades as voicing the truth, etc. 
So each part ends with tools to scan your mentality, check your habits, and set the intensity for a stronger, counterfeit-free center of gravity. Here are the trailers for each element. Element 1. Radical Humility Part 1 resets one of the most essential yet mercurial traits of human existence. Confidence. And in the same way BMI, or body mass index, is a metric of fitness, but not exercise itself, confidence is a metric of something else, not the source. And as a symptom, confidence wavers when conditions and comparisons order it to. Too young to lead, or too old to be relevant. Too masculine to be sensitive. Too feminine to be strong too unfashionable to be beautiful, too beautiful to be respected, to this, to be that. We asked 500 people, what makes them feel less confident? 59% listed appearance as the biggest reason, followed by ability, 49%, intelligence, 38%, physical size, 35%, age, race, and gender. All symptoms. When asked what it takes to boost confidence, only a few said things like curiosity or courage. No one said humility. And yet, when you zero in on the psychological and social output of confidence, the mentality to get there looks less like the confidence we've known and more like the humility we haven't. Humility is not just the cure for overconfidence, arrogance, or some Trumpy version of narcissism. It's the antidote to everything from pre-presentation nerves and irritating self-consciousness to paralyzing doubt. And that version of humility, radical humility, is the purest anti-ego, insecurity-free kind of confidence. Humility cuts ego, not power. It drowns doubt, not confidence. Element two, irrepressible curiosity. Everyone's curious. Just how curious is a matter of intensity. And on the face of it, square one, learning curves, drawing boards, jungles, seems like the perfect place for irrepressible curiosity. And it is. Sometimes. But the pressure to do something fast and right weighs so heavily on the souls of the people inside the square that skipping along the surface of curiosity substitutes for diving. So, in the face of speed and certainty and resistance, or the pressure to fit in and say nothing, curious human beings, the perceptive ones, listen to opponents, which is not our first instinct, especially if we're secure in our little cliques, argue for and against their own ideas so others aren't afraid to speak, inspire provocative questions, switch perspectives, walk away from the tide of opinion, resist rigidity, cut to the chase, ask questions that seem obvious but are not, be fascinated by views outside their private universe, not just tolerate them or pretend to pay attention, lean on their tribes and teams for camaraderie but not as a crutch, make the uncomfortable comfortable, the comfortable uncomfortable, and spark the incurious to be curious. 
And there's plenty of room for spark because only one in five say they're actually curious. So part four is a plunge into the not so shallow end of curiosity, not just to understand one another, but to be perceptive. And in that way, part four is mind reading, not mind skimming, not presuming. Being perceptive doesn't mean you're a genius with a flood of illuminating things to say. It means you squint to see things everyone else misses. It's like walking into a dark room and lighting a candle. You're not creating something that isn't there. You're illuminating what's waiting to be seen. Element three, relentless veracity. At a distance, psychological safety appears to be the haven from debate, emotional clash, and negativity. And that haven is creative purgatory. And how the truth stays buried. Ask creators, ask science, where the best ideas live, and not everyone is at ease with the answer. There are thousands of articles on expressing emotions at work. We randomly sampled 100. Eliminating negative emotions wins by a three-to-one margin. So who's behind the three? Consultants and coaches. And who's on the side of the one? Science. Negative emotions at the right intensity, with the right intent, are precisely how broken things get fixed. The truth finds an outlet, and revolutions begin. Because doesn't true safety mean it's okay to be aggravated by bad policy, a little rebellious at company politics, annoyed with bureaucracy, and bored by average products, and to passionately express? Express it. If we're serious about progress and not just being nice, we need a little friendly friction and a few happy fights. Originally, bravery was part of gravity, and we kept chasing it, trying to pin bravery down. It was mysterious. Every time we traced a behavior or belief back to brave, something else showed up. A provocative question that someone could not not ask. The truth they had to speak. The havoc of ego that humility tamed just in time. Eventually, C.S. Lewis solved it for us. Courage, he wrote, is every virtue at its testing point. What we witnessed wasn't bravery, per se, but any given element, virtue, trait, or strength, at its full intensity, often under pressure. So when bravery starts bleeding, dig for the element, deeper curiosity, bolder humility, stronger thirst for the truth, and feel bravery start returning. If you remember anything from the Reverend Martin Luther King's I have a dream speech on August 28, 1963. It probably isn't from the first 11 minutes. Because sensing that King and the crowd and the civil rights movement ached for a little more, gospel singer Mahalia Jackson called out to King from behind the podium at the 11-minute mark. Tell them about the dream, Martin, Jackson said. Tell them about the dream. 
The final five minutes weren't in King's script. Listen closely, and it's almost as if the reverend begins to sing. It is poetry. It is gospel. King's response to Jackson in front of 200,000 people was humility at its testing point, bravery in the shape of humility. King could have ignored the voice behind him and finished his script, but he let it reach him. And Jackson's sweeping sense of her own equality trumped any deference to the weight of the moment or hierarchical gap between her and the reverend. Civil rights mattered. Relevance mattered, not a preacher's pride. At her testing point, Jackson's love for her people and her preacher became a voice of inspiration to a voice of inspiration. Outside forces always test what's inside. Always. Bravery may get credit for August 28th, it often does, but it was really the full intensity of elements that changed the day, and then changed decades. And now part one, where an edgy, distinguished Rhode Island senator awaits a mild-mannered television host under the canopy of an entirely different jungle. Where, like Jane, time was also ticking away, money was also running out, and expertise for what was ahead ran precariously low. 